nudge. This is sparking thoughts about a, another conversation I had with some friends when I was traveling last, last time we talked during that same trip. And these other friends are, are musicians. Uh, we were just kind of talking about the, the, you know, when does it go from like hobby to profession or, you know, yeah. hobby to vocation and, you know, among other kind of demarcations, it's that uh, the aspect of the, just practice or and like just working the craft, kind of working on something without the the thought that it's going to be seen or shared or, or uh, go any farther than just the the act of working on it itself, but. So I mean this, yeah, this idea of having a a curriculum or a something that that we would work on that may, maybe it would inform this podcast. But I, I like the kind of professional discipline that comes from just working on things just to get better at what we're doing. Yeah. Uh uh, to, and to Matt, th when you were talking um, about the MFA programs and so forth, I, it took me a long time to actually decide to go to the MFA program. I, I, I'm, I, I think everybody starts out self-taught, you know, I mean, it, whether it's back in the uh, high school mm -hmm. days and you start keeping a journal or you just get that bug, you get that fever, you get that desire. And we should have that profession versus hobby conversation sometime on our podcast every mm -hmm. week great thing to talk about but i didn't i mean it was because it was available at the place that i was teaching for free and i was wanting to move from what i was doing technical writing composition to creative writing and teach it as well i went into it and, and a lot of the things that i discovered about it because i have to admit i was a little bit i wasn't um cynical i just had a gut feeling that how am i going to learn how to write from a book. So I, I had a lot of different uh, experiences with it. It turned out to be good because it, 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 in many ways it's like a podcast, but you're just doing it for an extended <laughs> period of time. Um, when you're talking to people that have been through there, most of the writers mm -hmm. that you work with, I think writers are good people usually. I mean, yeah. they, they could be the SOBs too, but uh, uh, they're usually when you, they know you're trying to, to write, they are usually saying, yeah, I've been there. <laughs> and uh, these are some things you might think about. Um, the book I use, because I still don't like to use the textbook so much, is called The Scene Book, S-C-E-N-E, -E, uh, by uh, Sandra Schofield. And she's showing how scenes are built uh, in books and, and movies, um, scripts, and so forth. And the reason I chose that is because she's pretty, uh, she's not, you know, arrogant in the writing. It's not way over anybody's head. And she wrote some of the most practical things that I, I, I you know them, Matt, but you yeah. probably just don't know, oh, that's a beat. That's a pulse. I mean, I did. Yeah. I was like, oh, that's what they mean by pulse in a, in, a, in a writing thing. And here's why you have to do that kind of moment. So um, I would recommend it's, it's available on Kindle and, and you can yeah. get a hard co copy. It's small. Um, and she talks a lot about movies and stuff like that. You skip that part, but mm -hmm. the actual text part yeah. is um, 
it, it, for me, it was really insightful because it's like, okay, so if I'm a doctor and I know the technical terms, I probably know what I'm doing a little bit better. And now I, and I, what you were saying earlier, Matt, because I know what a beat is now and because I know why you don't want to put too many adjectives in there, but it's not just somebody telling me or my instinct being that, you know, it's not, mm. it's not, um, reading right you know you, you you know when you're writing something and you and you go back and you read it something's not right here it's not right, wrong right just but it's not just right. yeah just not right what and yeah. what is that what is what is it that's exactly right? yeah and so, so she's pretty good about that she's she kind of i mean she's not gonna give you the whole world she's not gonna say now you're the greatest writer in the world but it was very practical for me so yeah. we can use that as our kind of foundation book too it's not very expensive um, Sandra Schofield scene book. I think you can get on Kindle if you were doing that. But we should not to not to stop there. But I think we do need to talk about or hear from Eric a little bit about his. Are we using the acronym or whatever? GPM. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, that works. I like calling it GBM. GBM. Yeah. What do you want to know? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I was thinking about this earlier, Eric, because I knew you were going to ask that. And because it is, a, it's not fair to just say, so Eric, talk about writing GBM. <laughs> That's the kind of crap that we were trying to avoid. Um, but Eric, talk about writing GBM. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I, I mean, you've been with this piece for how long now? Uh, At least a year, almost yeah. five years. It's we talked about, long. we've been talking, I talked about this with you in Singapore. <laughs> That's right. Oh, it, God. It, it takes so long almost for me to get work out. It's crazy. I think about myself as writing all the time, and then I realize I've published like <laughs> two things. And you you kind of had a couple ideas about it. I carried those over. Talk about that germ... germ, germ uh, nation? Germination? Yes, thank you. Germination. The germination? Period. Yeah, and, the, and the, the spreading of the seed. Yeah, and then when it finally became, I'm going to put it down now, and then that was another... How long have we been on this, Matt, with him about GBM? At least, at least five months, I'd say. Mm. Right? Yeah, at least. I, I think that's something we yeah. have we could talk about because people think, like, right, you know, it just happens. How, somebody asked me the other day, "How long did it take you to write this book?" And you want to say to them, "About twenty years," right? <laughs> because, it, <laughs> because that's how long I've been thinking about that idea. But yeah. Eric, if you, if if we didn't catch you at a wrong time or if it's not too big a question. No, that's walk, an appropriate, walk. that's an appropriate okay. question. And one I don't okay. think about often. Um, the, the gold bow monk started as, uh, from your work. Um, it, it was acknowledging that hair girl was a incredible setting and that you as you do painted a number of very good characters and deftly stayed close to one you have a very tight style and all i could do and all i do typically when i engage with someone's work as an editor or reader is try to pour myself into that world and to see what cracks my form starts to flow into. And when I communicate that back to people, it often comes across as 
here's where else you could go. Like, look at these other doors that you opened that you did or didn't realize were open. And in your case, that was Hans Granier, which Hans was a young-ish professor who was shipping to Hergrohl with the intention of tutoring royal children. And... He sits in the car, the gondola headed up to this beautiful setting, and meets the protagonist of your story. And the protagonist immediately sees an opportunity in Hans to steal his identity and use his access to the places the detective needs to go. And in order to do that, Hans is essentially chloroformed with alcohol, inebriated, over-inebriated, made drunk, passed out for multiple days um, so that the detective can complete his investigations. And at the end of that, where where does Hans go? Um, couple that with the second place that your story made room for, which was a monastery. And monasteries have always been fascinating to me for their cloistering, for their ritualisms, for um, the way monks have an ability to seem removed of the world and as if they contain more than what other people contain through the simple act of doing lots but demanding very little. And I thought, what is it a monk has inside of themselves? And I found it interesting that both Matt and I's sidewinding stories had to do with bones. And the, the removing of the bones from the body and finding value in those bones. Because for me, there's a notion that over time and by doing something ritualistically or in practice, your bones grow heavy or your ability grows strong. You grow steadier in what you're trying to do. And so the idea that that is a value, that experience is a value that could be transmuted into a physical metaphor for value that a monk could scrub the floor so long that their bones turn into gold was a thrilling concept to me and totally weird because so much of the pursuit of gold is digging it out of the ground and if someone were to stumble across that if someone were to see those bones they would have a number of concerns. They would be, one, immediately shocked because bones are made of a very specific material that most of us know, which is bone, the material. Two, their own doubt, which China Mieville wrote an incredible story about a man who works in a... He's a studying medical student. Medical student, yeah. 
who discovers that one of his cadavers has sigils inscribed or etched into the bones on the body. And so begins the gory and very similar process to what Matt's character goes through in Buzzing and ultimately comes to that that kind of internal sense of horror, which is, what about my own bones? Am I made of this? Is Are my bones gold? And so when I presented this piece to you, Tim, a long time ago, I think the only real scene that I had in my head was a train accident in which Hans and the monk are similarly tossed from the train and the monk's bones are exposed. And Hans sees that, but can't deal with that or do anything about it. And his incapacitation in this case, and in the way my mind went, was because he himself has suffered a similar injury. His own arm was ripped off in that case. And from there, that was the, that was the seed. That was, I wanted to get to that scene. I needed to know how he got there from the last place that we saw him. When you are, uh, you've got your point, your reference point, I want to get to this scene, whatever it may be, very vague, very, very just esoteric, but you know what you want to, you saw this vision, you want to get there. Walk us through a little bit about your writing process to get there. Because uh, I think I think Matt saw these too. I saw a lot of the early versions. And, and for those, I don't, because you have kind of changed it a little bit, a lot, actually. The original versions were very descriptive of the actual place that we're looking at and, and places that you're going to introduce. Very descriptive in terms of, uh, very, almost like a D&D, &D, uh, but still creative. You know, it wasn't just a textbook version of it. It was, it was like, here's what we see, here's what we're seeing, here's what we're seeing, here's what we're seeing. And now you've kind of gotten much more, you know, you've, you've flipped that switch and so forth. But how did you decide or is there anything you could talk about that writing process in terms of I got this thing I see I want to get to. This is my you know inspiration. And yet that's obviously not how you opened it up. Even in your original drafts, you don't know. I don't think you opened it up that way. No. It certainly has changed a lot, and that is very much due to, you know, your feedback and to the 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 process of the pieces maturation. Mm -hmm. Over time, things slip away as unnecessary to get to what I realize the thing is actually talking about. But would you say that you have to write that anyway? I did. I do. Yeah. Because yeah. it adds so much to those moments that are left for me and i can hope that it leaves that much for someone else okay. but the act of origin to begin and then to move back to the act of the same molting that we were talking about or slow sloughing off um that act of of working to something for me is a forward and backward motion 
in this case, that is not the last scene. It doesn't, it's, it's, it's a scene of dynamo. It's a scene where something is discovered. It's a scene where someone has a revelation, which way will they go? And so in order to understand how they will move from there, I have to understand how they got there and what their motives were to even getting to that point. And so knowing that I had a scene with a train in the snow with a, a, a gold-boned monk and a handless man, I have to ask myself, what is the man doing on the train? We knew where he was because of you. You know, I have an interesting framework in that. Uh, I can set kind of a rock in a hard place in that circumstance and set some parameters for myself to use Matt's long lost word. <laughs> on the other hand, the monk is a total mystery to me. Why are his why are his bones gold? Why you know all these sorts of questions? And why why is he on a train? Um, are monks allowed on trains? All these sort of like rationalist questions that I must have an answer for for myself. It's just who I am. And in order to tell a good story, I think you do want to know in your own rules why something happened, even if your rules exceed those of the world. Um, so I worked backwards, really. Um, and a lot of stuff changed over time, of course. There's no snow now. Um, and a lot of that is the conditioning of the fact that I was writing the piece in the world. I was engaged with a different landscape when I was writing in my mind, where I am physically. And so my ability to describe things and the things that came had more to do with that. And I read a piece of, I wrote this piece originally five years ago with Tim and it wasn't done. It was written in little chunks that were more in a style entirely fabricated of my own imagination. And if left to my own imagination, I write expansive and idea-based things because I'm in my mind. If I'm writing based on a book I'm reading or a place that I am, that incorporates itself and changes the voice or tone of how I'm writing. If I'm sitting in a grass field, it's rare that there will not be grass in some way or a <laughs> metaphor in some way will slink its way in to the circumstance or to the text. So I read and found after putting this away for a while and finding no energy or momentum to complete it, a series of five books on a $3 cart. And one of those was When Beauty Rode the Rails, which was a pictorial history of trains in America when there was a transition from the fanciful Gothic trains to the modern utilitarian idea of what a train would become. And reading that book, all the way through looking at all the pictures and writing down every single phrase that I didn't know and every single fact or way of saying something that struck my fancy or sparked my imagination gave me a bank 
of facts and phrases and vocabulary in which to tell the story of the train as that third element to monk, man, and uh, scene. At which point, I just worked my way chronologically through the book. I started from the top of my vocab and I said, okay, write from one piece of vocab or phrase that you like to the next and you fill in the blanks. And all you have to use are a monk and a man. And I weaned it down, weaned it down until eventually I was exhausted and I handed it to you guys. <laughs> and that exhaustion, I had to trust that as completion and understand that whatever was in there was the story. And since then, it's been the work of getting rid of the original, like covering my traces with the three-pronged branch, saying there was never another book that I read. I always knew the monk was going to end up here. This man, I've known his history since before I wrote this. And that's the long, slow work of editing and looking and sounding out and hearing your feedback. Sometimes you got to write a lot of stuff just from, from, from where it's coming from to get to the kernels that you need. And sometimes you need to read three books or $3 books and all of a sudden it just, the heavens open up and everything makes sense. I mean, I, I really like that answer. Yeah. I love the, the image of like, uh, covering your tracks <laughs> that, again, I mean, it kind of speaks to the craft of it, uh, and the, the importance of, yeah, just writing a lot and writing stuff that will never be read. Like that's the, like, like any piece of writing that is kind of read for public consumption, it's the, you know, that's the finished product and yeah, it's like with anything, there was a lot of practice that went into that. And a lot of uh, just, uh, I don't know, like, like storyboarding or imagining or like, uh, you know, writing of like kind of little bios for characters that aren't, you know, the bios aren't going to have any immediate kind of impact or relevance for the story other than we the writer will now know who this character is and why they do what they do right. a little more fully and then, then maybe then you have a little kind of cache of things that you can draw from and go back to later <laughs> like uh that's, right. that's totally fair game but uh, and i don't know i just and uh, the you know i'm thinking like i'm a, a magician and of all the the tricks of the trade and we kind of we see this finished trick but but the finished trick only works because of all the things we don't see hmm. and i think that's kind of i'm thinking like eric's story works because of all the things we don't see that's all right. that uh but he knows right he, right yeah he, oh he knows the yeah, tricks he knows exactly yeah, yeah. yeah. And we feel it. I think we sense it. You know, and I, we, I know we were reading some versions of, of Eric's story, but I mean, every time I read somebody's story like this, it's always a new one for me. I, I, my, my memory's going anyway. So, <laughs> but it reads new now, but it reads with, uh, it's actually more depth. I think you cut it down from to do like 27 pages now, and it used to be 
I want to say 90. Didn't you have it? You were up to 90 at one point. But it actually has more depth now, if that makes sense. We had more detail, uh, more extended narrative or exposition. But now it's like a, it's like that, you know, Hemingway's iceberg. We're, we're seeing the tip, but that whole thing is underneath the ocean and we can feel it. Well, I, I, you guys keep going because this is this is good. But I've got to go pick up my wife. Um, otherwise, I'll, 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 my new home will be just one person. And I don't want that. So, I don't need that. Yeah, yeah. But uh, keep going on that stuff. And, and, and if you need a question, Eric, another question, you don't have to get to this one now. But um, someday, and I want to hear Matt, and I want to speak to it too, talking about hearing feedback and how easy and how difficult it is to actually respond to the feedback. I don't mean feelings. You know what I mean? It's like how you have to decide, do I listen to this one and actually do that? Or do I, do you, do, do you get what I'm asking? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. you could save that answer for when I'm here to hear it, or you can surprise me and, and later on, but I'm, <laughs> I'm going to go pick her up. Um, she's only three minutes away. If you guys keep talking, I'll sneak back on a little later. If you're not there, then I know you left. Uh, and I, I'm wondering, because I know for me, giving and receiving feedback in writing is much easier and easier to take than giving and feeding in, in person. Yeah. You know, there's something about the getting it in writing that I can do my own first read of your comments and have my initial reactions and kind of frustrations and curses and like, uh, and then let those sit and, uh, and then go back after that. Yeah. The initial, uh, response is over and then figure out what what was just needed to just a reflex or a hiccup that just needed to to be expressed and then set aside and what is the more like the truth of what is really going on there yeah and i think of just like relationships in general that how often our initial reaction to whatever was said feedback or otherwise that initial reaction is not the truth it's just the most immediate reaction uh but how often we get stuck there because that's like the immediate reaction and then there's just that back and forth like I've reacted and responded in this way. And that triggered that whole, like, this reminded me of Mario Kart. This, this referenced something that you had no intention of it referencing, but here's where it intersected in my life. And now I'm, and how, how much trouble that can cause in, in relationships. When it's just, we haven't even gotten anywhere near the truth because we're just reacting and then arguing with the reactions and then, feeling pissy about how you reacted to my reaction. I think that that art of editing 
it's especially in writing just slows that whole process down in a way that for me just yeah grounds like i'm more grounded therefore more stable therefore more honest therefore more likely to to get to where i'm going I'm curious how much you take of my edits. Uh, I, I, at this point, I think, you know, I, I trust you and, and I know your style that I, I take them. The one thing I for sure, if you say to remove something, like that, I rarely do I disagree with that. Because I think as a reader who knows what I'm trying to do, like if, it, it, as, or I guess just the, the initial like experience of reading, that if the feedback is this, you don't need this, I understand what you're doing. Oh, I take that. I take that seriously. Like that is because that, and I think that's too. That's what what I get impatient. Like when I'm editing other people's work or just critiquing The Watchmen, for example. Like where I lose patience is when like this didn't need. We didn't need to know this. We didn't need to do this. The, uh, you know, I, I don't like feeling like you didn't trust me as the audience or, uh, or you felt like this needed, this show needed to be an hour just because that's how long shows are, or this book needed to be 75,000 words because that's how long books are. Like, it just, there's no good reason for it. So I want to avoid just there not being any good reason for it. So, so I definitely, uh, I take that seriously. Uh, you know, I, I generally, you know, I get them more often than not. I print them out. I have the, the hard copy on paper which again, I think just slows the process down. Another step uh, helps it digest a little more smoothly. Yeah, I sit, I sit down and I just read it through once. And uh, usually, or as much as I can, just straight through, like, I don't always have the chunks of time to read it straight through. So I might have to come back to it, but uh, I'll read it through and, and yeah, sort of get a general sense of, of the feedback, S sit with it, feel all the, you know, there's the uh, initial feelings of like, what am I doing? Like, uh, like I, I'm a, I suck at writing. Like, why do I, or not even that, I guess I, I'm, 
I've, I've gotten over that like baseline criticism, but it's more like, the, why do I keep making the fuck, same fucking mistakes over and over again? Like, why do I do that? And then there's always a moment of like, Eric's going to lose patience with me because I keep making the same mistakes and he's not going to want to be my editor and friend anymore. And that's going to stop. Totally me. true. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. So I uh, work through all those, all those feelings. And then. Uh, no, then reading it, reading through and, and slowing down. You know, I try to try to pay attention to like what, you know, what scenes was I like really excited about? And it, again, then it's, you know, I, I guess I try to sort of read it as, as objectively as I possibly can, the feedback, like just recognizing that the scenes that I was most excited about, I thought most clever uh, are quite possibly the ones that didn't work or like, or, or trying to get a little distance from those scenes, like really tr trying to uh, hear the feedback as it was written, not as it's like being re like heard in my head, if that makes sense. Like, uh, and you know, and if on second reading, if I feel like I'm having a like really like strong, like, ah, he just, he missed it. He just missed it. Like, uh, then I'll, I'll just put it down and like, okay, <laughs> I'm too close. I need, I need a little more distance. And it, sometimes that'll be hours or days or weeks and like, or I'll just skip to a different section and not necessarily work through it linearly. Uh, but it's that, yeah, hmm. keeping keeping a, that somewhat detached is the uh, where a lot of the energy goes. And you know, I, th like, uh, I think I have a stronger than average. I don't even know what the average means. I don't know what this, any of this means. It's like I feel like I have a stronger than average re reaction to rejection. Like I, everyone hates it. I feel like I hate it more than other people based on conversations I've had with other people about rejection. And so there's sometimes where it's just like, oh my God, is this a rejection? Like, like no, no, okay, no, this is exactly what you asked for. <laughs> like, <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, uh, and, and, and so trying to be nimble enough to like identify the feelings for what they are and not for what I'm afraid they are. Like hmm. this feels bad. This feels like it could be like, this, Oh wait, no, that's, that's what it feels like. That's not, that's not what it is. So. Hmm. Oh, it's a good relationship, man. Yeah. 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 I, I, I am thankful for it. Every, like every back and forth. I'm just like, Oh, this is, uh off topic but uh i heard your your guy uh 
Stephen Graham Jones, that's your guy, right? Yeah. He was on NPR yesterday or the day before. No. Yeah, he uh, has has a new book out, so he was getting interviewed. Awesome. Well, I could see. I was like, oh, I get why Eric jived so well. Oh, yeah. Maybe that's this maybe is... where I got the word jive from. Maybe. maybe. <laughs> but it was, I was like, oh, I see why they hit it off. Like, Yeah. So, yeah, he sounded like a cool dude. And he was talking about... Uh, is it's Native American horror is is what the new book's about, and so the, a lot of it was talking about the importance of tradition hmm. to kind of the human project in general and to native culture specifically and that but then like as part of uh, taking tradition seriously is uh, knowing when to break with it or how to break with it. That breaking with tradition doesn't ignore tradition; it absolutely affirms tradition, mm -hmm. but then actively decides, "But I'm going to do this." Mm. Which, mm. Uh, thinking about some of our conversations here about like when do you kind of break with formula, break with style, break, like break expectations. And how, how do you do that in a way that affirms what people were expecting in the first place? And then, yes, I know what you wanted. I know how to give that to you. So you trust me. And so that's going to make this all the more surprising, but you will continue to trust me and go, go over here with me, even though I pulled the rug out from under you. Yeah. I mean, it really comes down to knowing the, your own expectations. What, when I start writing something and I see what I'm writing, where I'm going, do I want to usurp myself right away and try to go somewhere really weird that I've never been before? Or is it okay to walk this line? Mm -hmm. I feel a lot of times like I'm presented forks in the process of writing that I sit and say, which way, Eric? And I just mm -hmm. choose. And how many times those choices end up without any ink at the end of them? <laughs> so many. And that's usually the end of a paragraph. That's usually the end of a section. Sometimes it's the end of a story. Sometimes it's something that will ultimately get removed when I go back and watch mm -hmm. myself walk the labyrinth or maze again. Tim is really good at encouraging the idea that you should know where you're going before you get started. Yeah. I don't trust him when he says it, but then I try it and I realize he's right. Yeah. It doesn't have to be a narrow vision or a narrow place that you're going to. But the narrower that you're going, the more room there is between then and there. The fewer things you have to work with. Yeah, and I think the all my first stuff, and not only, maybe I'm even still in my first stuff, but my earliest stuff, the stuff before now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I mean, I had no idea where I was going. I just, just wrote and figured it out. And I think that worked, but 
part of what makes a professional a professional is like so okay you can do it once but like how replicable is it like that you know i think like uh you know baseball the difference between like the guys at the top of the game and the guys even just a little bit lower the guys at the very top can just do it again and again it's replicable they can perform at that level over and over and over and musicians too like what's the best musician they perform at that level over and over and over and i just to just like write blindly and not know where you're going it's harder to at least for me as i understand it now and as i understand myself as a writer now it's a lot harder to perform and replicate a good story without knowing where you're going at some point you need to yeah have an understanding of the mechanics so you can replicate and that's what i mean tim's stories are so tight all the time like i like yes i feel like i learn a lot about plot and how to know where i'm going and get where i'm going just from reading his stuff i'm thinking about the several things the quality idea that you've posed is dead on because the creative person rebels against the idea that they need to be able to replicate creation in yeah. and of itself feels like a unique action i'm right. starting from zero and making something it should never look the same right however the idea that you're replicating a system the story the poem in a context that's changing constantly mm -hmm. life means it will never look the same not exactly but it should look similar yeah. it can look similar that doesn't adjust or modify or remove uniqueness in any way and so seeing somebody at the top of their game moving seamlessly doing the thing that they are trying to do with almost no effort it seems mm -hmm. is beautiful is aesthetically stunning and it's why we love watching people amidst other people it's why we like reading great books amidst terrible twitter feeds is seeing someone work the language and work a story and deliver wisdom in amidst people who are doing the same but with less attention less practice more effort at getting to mm -hmm. where they want to get it's amazing to watch and it's one of the things that makes reading as editor something that i hope more people do and i want to encourage in these small group settings like here like the other podcast like the workshop is to say i know editing i like editing i want you to edit me too mm -hmm. and in a way that feels good like in a way that makes you understand that editing my work is not just beneficial to me in a way to say i've learned more about story from telling other people what a story is supposed to be than i ever have writing my own stories yeah and now I'm able to use it. 
Thanks for listening to The Nudge. Any books, films, interviews, or other media that we've mentioned, we've tried to track down and pin on our Discord server for interested parties. If you'd like to join us in conversation, share something you've been prompted to write, or just take a peek at these references, you'll find links to that server on our website, clawfootpress.com. Thanks again.